This week, it's a dive into Boom with show creator, writer, and director Faith McQuinn. We talk about anger, we talk about trauma, we talk about repression, and we have a surprisingly good time. It sounds heavy, but it's not, because faith is delight personified. Stick around, because that's all coming up on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. We're continuing our coverage of the crime thriller audio drama Boom, which is into its second season. Boom is a show that never ceases to shock and delight me with its surprise twists and occasionally infuriating protagonist. Friend of the show, Ellie Fernandez Collins, recently said on Twitter while listening to Boom, quote, I am a giant scream and I'm like four minutes in, end quote. This is very accurate to my own experience. I had a lovely chat with Faith, who, when she's not working on the podcast, raising twin eight-year-olds, making delicious-sounding pies, or directing movies, teaches screenwriting and directing courses at Middle Tennessee State University and the Art Institute of Nashville. She joined me remotely from her home in Nashville, and hey, just a heads up on two fronts here. Number one, we'll be discussing PTSD, and number two, major spoilers for season one of Boom. So if you want to get caught up with the first season before listening, I won't stop you. Let's... Take a listen. Faith McQuinn, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, Faith, I would like for you to tell me about your mom's favorite audio dramas and the audio dramas that you heard as an adult that inspired you. Okay. These are almost the same. (laughs) My mom loved The Shadow. Okay, so I should start with the fact that my mom was born an early enough time that radio shows were part of her childhood. They did not have a TV because TVs were really expensive at the time because my mom likes to joke that she was born the same year as television. 47? Yes. Oh, okay. And so she's like, I grew up with TV, but not really. Um, But she loved The Shadow and she listened to Amos and Andy and she loved X minus one. And I listened to The Shadow and I thought it was great, but X minus one was the show. I have listened to every episode of X-1 at least five times. Wow. I absolutely love it. And I still go back and listen to it sometimes. Like, I still have it on my phone. I don't know if they still run them or not, but there is a podcast that has X-1 episodes, and I will just... I love them. Can you send that to me? Because X-1 yeah. is not part of my, like, classic rotation. Oh, yeah. I, I got into audio drama listening to, like, classic mystery stuff, specifically the... Nero Wolf mysteries. Oh, I love Nero Wolf too. You are like the first person that I've ever talked to that has also heard them. Really? Yes. <laughs> oh, that's so weird. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. Yeah, my my mom and my aunt used to fight over what radio shows they would listen to. <laughs> and whoever got to listen to the radio show also had to clean the dishes. That was how they decided. Okay. So that's what we started doing. We started listening to radio shows because mom had a bunch on tape. So we would just listen to them while we're cleaning up the kitchen or over dinner. Yeah. And what the funny thing is, is that I try to tell her what I'm doing with this podcast and she doesn't understand it. I'm like, but it's the same kind of, I was like, mom, it's like the same idea. Does she not get like the distribution mechanism? (laughs) Yeah. I think that's what her trouble is because I, um, my mom got a smartphone like, you know, six months ago. So, (laughs) and she still looks at it as like, it's the scariest thing she's ever seen. So I'm like, okay, mom. So she had she had surgery 
a few months ago. So when she was in the hospital, I brought my older like phone and said, here, here they all are. And so we listened to the first like three episodes of my podcast while she was in the hospital. And then I finally got her hooked. So then she listened at home. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was happy she was being supportive. So you've been carrying this idea with you for, I think you said, 20 years. Yes. Like short film, yeah. screenplay, a novel. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to produce and distribute it in this way? I don't know. I think something just clicked. I, you know, I was thinking about different ways to do it, and I just didn't want to let go of the story. I'd been holding on to it, obviously, for so long, and I was like, I've got to figure out a way to do this. Should it be a web series? But I really can't afford a web series. Should I try to sell it as a film? And I was listening to We're Alive, and I actually wrote to Casey Wayland, and we were started talking back and forth. It turns out we went to the same school, not at the same time, but we both went to Chapman University. Right. You got your master's at Chapman. Yes. And he got his undergrad at Chapman? Yes. Or did he get a master's there too? I, he might have gotten a master's there because he's teaching there now. Right. And so we got in a whole conversation about that. And he said that the reason he did We Are Live is for the same reasons, that he wanted to make it as a film and he couldn't afford to. So he was trying to find a different outlet. And then I realized, I was like, wait a second, I can do the same thing. So I just, I was like, okay, I've known nothing about podcasting outside of the guest spots I've done on other people's podcasts, which is just me recording and then sending it to them. And then it magically ends up in my list on my phone. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how this works. So I talked to a bunch of my podcasting friends because I seem to have a lot of them. And they were all like, oh yeah, you got this. You can do this. You can totally do it. Just make it happen. So there, it just did. <laughs> <laughs> and I came up, honestly, it came up in my, you know, that on this day thing that's on Facebook. Um, at mm-hmm. the end of last month, it came up and it's my status said, so guys, I'm thinking about doing a podcast. Anybody want to help me out? <laughs> so, so it was a year ago at the end of February. Little did they know. <laughs> I know. I'm like, this is crazy. Well, so I've noticed that you run you run the production much like a film shoot. Like oh, there yeah. are there are people with credits that are distinct from what you might normally hear on an audio drama podcast, like a script supervisor and a casting director. Yes. Tell me about what you have carried with you as a filmmaker into the practice of making audio drama. Um, we pretty much, we, I even say I'm running a set when I know I'm not. But first of all, I like to have everybody there. Every person you heard, with the exception of like little small parts, like the announcer at the club or something, they're all there together. So we do a weekend and everybody comes in and we'll do scenes opposite each other and work together and do that thing. And my assistant director, Amanda, is absolutely amazing at working out schedules, getting everybody in, making sure that nobody is just sitting around doing a thing. It's so hard. Yes, it is the hardest thing. And I'm so, so lucky to have her because she's amazing at it. So, yeah, so we we do that. We make sure that everybody's there at the same time. And I do all in one bit. So we do a read through. Everybody gets their scripts. We do a read-through so I can do the last-minute notes. And then we come in and record in the studio like a week later. And we did a day of Foley the first season where I went out with my sound guy. And we just did a day where we were just picking up all the Foley we needed, which was a lot of fun. So that was fun. But then I didn't realize things that I would need. Like, I didn't realize that I needed about a dozen different door sounds 
I'm sure there are other audio drama podcasters who get this that should try to find mm-hmm. like the sounds of different doors. And I'm like, this is the hardest part. Yeah. Why can't I find different doors? But you know, like little things like that. So I keep like looking around for that, but I have, I have an amazing team around me. And I think that I don't know if other people do it, if they do all of their own stuff, but I've always worked as I'm the director, I'm the writer. So I find crew. So I don't do any of my own sound editing. That's all Josh. I do the initial edit so he knows where everything goes. But then like after that, I send it to him and all of that beautiful sound you hear is him. So when you say you do the initial edit, does that mean you you give him like the the vocal cut, you choose the takes? Yeah. And then you say, okay, now gussy this up? Yeah. Like I'll I'll do the I'll do the vocal cuts and I'll do like scratch fully in places, but then yeah. Then he takes it and runs with it. When you say scratch fully, is it like mouth sounds where you're like, <laughs> that's a that's a door, Josh. And now I'm doing that. Okay. <laughs> but no, I have my library only has about five thousand sounds in it, so I just I'm like, I'm just gonna put this door that I found, but this isn't the door I want it to be. Or I found the sound of a breaking glass, but it should be a mug instead. <laughs> You know, like, oh, like the explosion in the first episode. Oh, he made that so much better because my explosion sounded terrible. <laughs> did he Did he say how he did it? Did he say what he like layered into the? No, 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 he didn't. It was really funny because I was all like, proud of myself for having 5,000 sounds in my library. And then he comes back to me. He's like, you know, I have like 60,000. I was like, thanks, thanks, thanks. <laughs> it's not about how many you have, Josh. It's about how you recombine them. <laughs> Exactly. In unexpected ways. Right. I think it was, I think it's a Ben Burt trick, maybe, to like layer a, like an animal roar under an explosion. Oh, I've heard that. I've heard that. Um, every time I try it, I'm like, oh yeah, there's just a, <laughs> there's just a bear exploding. <laughs> so it doesn't, it doesn't really work for me. Um, but I think I'm not like pitching it down enough. Yeah, it's been, it's right. been a while. Frankly, it's been a while since I've done like sound design, sound design. Yeah, the last time I really had to do it was when I was in grad school and um, I was cutting a film for a friend and we had a a mine collapse and he did the whole scene MOS, which is without sound for people who don't know. So he's like, he's like, you can build this. You've got it. So I'm like, but you gave me nothing. (laughs) Like there was zero (laughs) sound in that scene. And I'm like, okay, so I... I think I ended up using a volcano, an avalanche, a train, and like a storm to like really build it. And he was like, no, that was awesome. And I was like, yay, me. <laughs> I'm not a sound designer, but I made that happen. Are are there influences that you consciously wanted to bring into Boom? I, I guess what I mean is um, I had this professor named Marshall Klimashevsky who called it like portable craft. That was his euphemism for, ooh, that's neat. I want to steal that and reuse it. Was there anything that you saw in other works where you were like, oh, yeah, 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 I want some of that, but in my thing? Hmm. Well, the immense amount of sound design I did probably came from listening to We Are Alive. Okay. Because – Pretty much like Casey, I was working like a filmmaker. And in fact, I've had people tell me that basically you could just stick some video over this and it would work. Like we don't skimp on the, not like saying that other people skimp on it, but I'm really like, like when I'm sitting there deciding what sounds I want in it, when Josh and I are talking about it, I'm like, 
do we really need all of that? Like, do I really need the sound of somebody walking across a stage? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. I got to have that. So yeah, I think that We're Live was a big influence on how to do the sound design and the narration, because I know a lot of people don't do narration. And that just came from growing up listening to older radio shows that were narrated. And I'm just so like caught up in, I don't know how else to explain it. Um, narrator time. (laughs) (laughs) Something that I think that Boom does really well and really interestingly is when you have these very dense scenes where there are multiple sources of sound in a scene, that there's this really interesting like intertextuality that that goes on. Like my attention bounces between like the converse. I I, I keep thinking about the scene uh, in Jen's apartment, right, that we keep returning to with the assailant. Oh, yeah. I guess should I – should we assume – that the listener has heard the entire first season? Should I, like, talk about first season spoilers? I feel like it's really hard to not. Because <laughs> I got, there. Are, I'm sure there are questions where I feel like I want to say that. So, yes, let's just, hi, everybody. We're going to talk about the end of season one now. <laughs> ba, 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 ba. When, when, when Luke and Jen are talking and when Porter, like, first comes into Jen's apartment discovering her with the vest in episode one, you know, that entire sequence, you know, the television's blaring in the background. And I, I'm, I feel like you chose everything that was happening in that background commercial and in, like, the movie that was playing, like, very specifically. Yes. I assume those are, like, original faith creations, right? Um, the, the movie actually came from... Um, something I found on a site called Firstcom. It's like copyright-free music and sounds. But we recorded that commercial because I knew I was going to use that commercial a lot. There's a whole story behind this commercial, so I'm going to tell you. Um, I don't know if you can really hear it. It's like for a robot vacuum, right? It's like for a Roomba? Yes, it's like that. It's called Rovi. And basically, I gave my daughters the task of telling me what this thing was that this commercial was going to be about. So they said that it was going to be a robot that would clean up so they didn't have to. So they told me all the things that it was going to do. So we wrote a whole script. We found like the most obnoxious jingle we could find. And uh, one of my best friends, she does commercial narration. So I asked her if she would do it. And she's like, oh, yeah. And she does accents. So all like all the accents, I don't even know if you can hear it all, but she does like four different um, customer <laughs> testimonials and she does a different voice for each one. <laughs> But it's all her. And I was like, this commercial is a gem. <laughs> but it's like his nightmare. Right. Like, that's what I love about it is it's so sunny and it's so like, da 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 da, buy our magic robot. And it's just so loud and I think really does a good job of generating chaos in that sequence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was the point we were like, I want it to be like the most catchy song. So anyone else hearing it would be like, oh, yeah, but when Porter hears it, it's the worst thing ever. (laughs) Sure. And it pops up in the season premiere in season two, but it's quick. So I don't know if anybody caught it. I caught it. Okay. When when he's like surfing. Yeah. uh, Surfing channels. Yeah. I thought it was going to trigger him again, frankly. Yeah, he did it quickly. He went by it very quickly. So there's a lot to chew on here um, in Boom about, like, the fragility of masculinity, all these, like, bottled up emotions and repression. What what informed your development of Porter? Um, well, here's an interesting thing. Like, when I first wrote this story, 
I had I had struggled with the idea of writing a main character that was male because this was the first time I wrote a main character that was male. And I was like, oh, this feels weird. Like, I feel like people are going to talk about like, oh, how can you write for a guy? But I felt like I wanted to explore the idea of dealing with post-traumatic stress and emotions and how he didn't want to get help. And I felt like it doesn't, I know this sounds so gender specific, but it just doesn't ring as true if it were a woman. Interesting. Like, I feel like she would have an easier time talking to her best friends than he does. Because he doesn't, even though both of his best friends are very aware of what's going on. And one of them even being a therapist saying, um, you're messed up, man. You need to get some help. <laughs> and him just not going after that. And I was really kind of nervous about doing it and ended up talking to two separate veterans, both of them friends of mine, you know, to ask them questions about PTSD. Both of them suffer from PTSD. And I was like, I know this is really a touchy subject, but they were both very willing to help. And um, the scene where he has his first break um, when he's making the bacon, that scene pretty much like we cra- I crafted that with one of my friends. Like he was really helping me figure out what would happen if he was triggered. And he was like, yeah, this is how this happens. And he said in those nightmares, it would be the same nightmare, be the same nightmare over and over again. And I was like, okay. So I'm hoping that I honored it well enough and that it seemed genuine. What was, what was the story about before you talked to those friends, like in, in the story's previous iterations? He was just really angry all the time because in my head, Porter has had an anger problem since he was a kid. Like he always likes to be in control. And when he couldn't be in control, he basically just lost his temper really quickly. So I felt like this is the ultimate not being in control because he can't get out of the funk of it. Like he can't get away from seeing what he saw. So he's just constantly angry. And I was like, this feels really flat. This can't play like this. I've got to figure something else out. And obviously he's still very angry, but we just, I was like, I needed to play around with it a little more to try to figure out what, how that anger could present itself in different situations. Yeah. I mean, like there's a literal individual villain in this story, right? But I I think that the antagonist overall for the plot can also just be said to be toxic masculinity, right? Oh yeah. Like modeled by Porter and Luke. Yeah. How how did you how did you capture that toxicity? Oh uh, <laughs> the weirdest thing is that I went super, super stereotypical and then backed away from it. Like I was like, what is the most stereotypical thing that can happen between these two men? And then I'm like, okay, now step it back. Because I was like, a fist fight would be the thing. But I never, ever had them actually come to blows. I was like, I want to keep pushing it where they're trying to do this to each other, but never do it. And again, this all came down to the backstory, which I'm hoping will be explored more. I still haven't figured out how. But because I've had a lot of people ask me, how were Porter and Luke friends at all? Sure. <laughs> like, like nobody can understand how they were friends. Dude's a dick. Yeah. I was like, yeah. But it was this idea that, again, going back to Porter, if he loses control, he gets angry. And But he was also an introvert as a kid, still is kind of an introvert, that he had trouble telling people that he was not in a situation where he felt control and he wanted to get out of it. And when he met Luke, 
Luke was very aware of situations and very aware of what was going on. So he would always kind of be the person who would save Porter. Like he would recognize the situation isn't good for you. Let's go do something else. So he would take him away and do something else. Or he would try to distract him by like doing like crazy stuff. So they would do like stunts and all this stuff. So Porter kind of felt that Luke was a security blanket. Interesting. So even though he's always been crazy, Porter's like, I kind of liked it. I kind of liked that he helped me be crazy too, because then I would get distracted and not be angry. You can tell me if this is a question you don't want to answer. But like on my on my second listen through, when they're out in Kentucky and Luke is trying to convince Porter to go like free soloing with him. Uh-huh. Yeah. I I was like, is this a pretext for him to murder Porter? <laughs> And, and again, you don't have to answer that if you don't want to. But I was like, oh, I figured that might just have been – he was so insistent. I thought that's like a – I'm going to clean up this loose end. It was a little bit. Okay. He also actually slashed their tires. Oh, he did actually slash their tires. Yeah. Because he didn't get the opportunity to kill him. Yeah. So he was pretty bad. Like I was like, I don't think that was at all apparent that when you know they make the joke about it and Dax gets really upset and Porter's like, no, I'm just joking. No, he actually did. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I felt like Luke is a very complicated guy who he likes manipulating more than just taking care of it. So he's like, even though he didn't get to do the thing he wanted to do when they were rock climbing, he liked playing with Porter just the same. Sure. So my friend Ellie, who wrote about Boom a few weeks ago in the Bellow Collective, pointed out that the show is kind of a, a crime show from the victim's perspective rather than from the detective or the perpetrator's perspective. And I hadn't been thinking of it that way. I was like, oh, this is like a drama. Uh, but now I can't stop thinking about it as like a procedural. Were you thinking at all of like true crime nonfiction podcasts and television when you started working on the series as a podcast? No, not really. That's, I mean, when she wrote that, I was like, that is kind of true in a weird way because I did have, especially my brother, who was really excited about the mystery part of it, the detective part of it. He was sad that that didn't keep going. And I said, well, that was never my intent. Like my intent was always to explore the victim's aftermath. And it just so happened that what was not helping him get through it was this detective. But yeah, I can see it as a crime story for sure. Because it does kind of carry the whole season. What what interested you so much about the victim's perspective? I've always been one for exploring grief, which is so and terribly morbid. But yeah, I think seeing how people deal with grief in different ways is fascinating. And, and it's mostly because I'm a strange person with grief. Like I'm very much into ritual and I, I'm fascinated by that by um, how different like religions deal with death and the ritual of it, not necessarily the faith behind it, but the ritual that takes place because of it. I'm like fascinated by that. So I thought it'd be interesting to not really focus on the ritual of it, but the emotion behind it. Because I can, when I did the funeral scene, I hate funerals. Like I absolutely hate them because mostly because it's like, you want me to sit here and grieve when I don't like to do that in front of other people. And it's like, I'd rather go celebrate instead. And so I've, I made Porter the same as me. Like he feels like he needs to be there, but he really like anywhere else. So when Luke's like, you want to go get a drink? He's like, yep, I definitely do. Sure. And that's the funeral. Yeah. For him. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
Have you ever been to uh, a shiva? I oh, uh, once. It was a while ago. I was I was young. I was probably ten or eleven. I don't know. I'm thinking. I'm just thinking about like death rituals. So I'm Jewish, and that's like the 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 wake equivalent that is most familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and it is like post. It is the. I hesitate to call it a party, but they're, you know, sometimes they can be kind of jovial. Yeah. You know, and it's all about like expressing grief through through food. Right. And remembrance and all that. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I'm about to do a short film about a family dealing with a funeral and how nobody in that family wants to be doing this. So they decide to do something else. What do they decide to do? <laughs> they decide to burn a piece of furniture. It's the dad. The dad and the family died. And he hated, I don't know what the furniture is yet because I haven't gotten the furniture yet. But let's say it's a couch. But he hated the couch. Like he absolutely hated the couch. And his wife is, and the kids are like, oh, well, we can sell it, mom. We can get rid of it. And she's like, no, that won't do. <laughs> so, so they take it outside and burn it in a big bonfire. It's amazing. Like a Viking funeral. Yes. That is like kind of my idea is that they couldn't do that for him, but they could do it for this god-awful piece of furniture. Oh, man. So I'm excited about doing that because I was like, oh, I know it's kind of, it seems morbid, but I also think it would be very freeing to be like, this is this thing he wanted and we didn't take care of it while he was alive. So gosh darn it, we're doing it now. That's amazing. Um, so, okay. So you live in Nashville. Yes. How how do you take advantage of Nashville's music scene for audio drama? Like, Myra's a singer-songwriter. Do you have mm-hmm. plans to incorporate more music into subsequent seasons? Yes. Like, I, my, my goal was to at least have her singing once every season, and she does it again. She'll sing. She has another song in episode 18 that I wrote the lyrics to. And Brian Irwin, who does our music, he did the music for it. So that's coming. So I'm excited about that because he wrote the song from the first season in, like, 10 minutes. I'm still, like, amazed at this. Wow. So, yeah, we sat down and I even cast Melinda without asking if she was a singer. But, you know, again, we live in Nashville, so I kind of assumed. Everyone's a singer. (laughs) And I was right. And nearly, okay, so all um, Charity, who does Genevieve, Courtney, who does Allison, and Melinda. Oh, and David Hiller, who plays Isaac. They all sing. And Brian, he's a singer-songwriter. So, yeah. So, yeah, Nashville. Let me know if you ever need a, a fiddler. My cousin oh, Lauren yay. used to. Uh, she studied at Belmont. She she plays a lot in gigs around in uh, in Nashville. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, that would be awesome to have. And I don't think that's an instrument that Brian plays, but maybe he does. <laughs> I don't know. He plays so much; it's crazy. Who's to say with composers, man? Right. And he loved doing it. I was like so excited to have him do it. He's like, yes, yes, I want to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of been that was his career. I mean, he does he does music producing mostly now, and he's got a new album coming out. But um, he did uh, songwriting for TV shows for years. Oh, cool. So he was like, never done a podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Let's go for it. Yeah, and I sent him um, Jose Gonzalez's record called Veneer. I don't know if you've ever heard okay. of that. Mm-hmm. Um He's got he's got a bunch of songs in the Secret Life of Walter Mitty. If you've seen that and you enjoyed the okay. soundtrack, that's Jose Gonzalez. I, 
I, I haven't. I've heard a couple Jose Gonzalez songs, though, right? Isn't he Swedish? Yes, he is. And I always tell people, okay. I'm like, yeah, he's Swedish. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, Swedish. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, no, I love him. I have like all of his albums. But Veneer was the one that I was like, this feels like boom. So I sent it to him. And he's like, okay, I got it. And when he came up with the um, opening theme song, I was literally dancing around the office. I was like, this is the best. I love it. <laughs> I was so happy. I just told him to do whatever. Like I sent him the album and I said, go for it, do whatever. And that's what he came back with. And it was amazing. Nice. And he's done all the score and been like excited about doing it. And I'm excited to see what else we get this season. Yeah, I like the distorted guitar that comes in anytime Porter's like on the edge of like a break. Yeah, we've been playing with that a little bit. Yeah, like we basically we kind of assigned themes to people. So it's like, that's like Porter's like angry theme and Myra has a theme and hers is kind of pleasant and happy and Genevieve's is a little sorrowful. So we know that we can always visit it. I'm like, Porter's about to get angry again. He's like, okay, we can. (laughs) Or when he's trying to hold on and not be angry, you can kind of hear the guitar a little bit in the back. So it's like, anytime you hear it, I'm like, this is, this is kind of a note that something's about to happen or Porter's really trying to not break. So I know from our earlier conversations and I know from your online presence that you're a science fiction nerd. Yes. What other kinds of stories are you interested in telling? I don't know. It's so weird. It's like I I really – it's very strange that this is the thing I did first was a very like straight fiction story instead of science fiction because that's what I tend to write. I have a time travel story that I'm really interested in telling and it's like the weirdest kind of time travel story. Like she doesn't – This woman basically is at a party and she's angry that her best friend is marrying someone else. And it's kind of like big, but without the machine, like she just meets some woman at the party and she's like, I wish I could go back five years. And the woman's like, oh, honey, it's all all right. And then gives her a glass of champagne and then she goes back five years in time. (laughs) Okay. Because she thinks she's having a hangover, but it turns out she time traveled. So (laughs) I'm working on that kind of story and I, I have a lot of ideas with space because um, in another life I was going to work for NASA. Oh, okay. I had all intentions of going into the Navy and doing my whole thing. I love quantum physics and yeah, I was going to do my whole NASA thing, but turns out being an asthmatic. No good for the oxygen mask? (laughs) Yeah, not not the greatest thing. Oh no. (laughs) So that didn't work out so well, but you know, I still went to space camp. And I still did all that. How was space camp? Oh, I loved space camp. And I kind of want to do it again as an adult. <laughs> I just found out that they have an adult program. Amazing. And I was like, really? Like I could go to space camp for a week? Yes. Such a nerd. It's fine. <laughs> I love it. My favorite place on the planet is the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I I know the entire floor plan. Like when I took my kids for the first time and they were probably one, there's this picture of me with these big grins on my face and they're both asleep. <laughs> and I'm like, it's okay. They're only one. It'll be fine. I'm here for me. <laughs> I'll keep bringing them back until they understand. <laughs> I guess yeah. I'm museuming for three today. <laughs> exactly. I was like, it'll happen. It's fine. That's adorable. They'll get it. But they're getting into it a little bit. They actually asked to watch a shuttle launch because I kept telling them about how they missed out on the shuttle program. So we watched a bunch of shuttle launches on YouTube and they loved it. Oh, nice. So, yeah. 
So I've got some space stories that I think I could work with. But I also feel like there are tons of sci-fi audio dramas. There are. And I love so many of them that I feel like, I'm like you know, I'm going to let those guys do those. <laughs> that I might stick to drama. I don't know. What, yeah, what do you want to see more of in the audio drama space? I want more kid stuff. Even though I found some great kid stuff, I want some, some like really good like family drama. You know, I need more Mars Patels. Mm-hmm. I, I need more of those in my life because I think I think it is definitely like an adult driven genre, which is an interesting conversation I've had with uh, people on a lot of podcast communities talking about language. And they're all like, oh, we tried really hard so we could be a family show. And I was like, man, that is so not true in audio drama. <laughs> not even a little, yeah. I was like, I was like, nobody's trying. We're all just throwing around the sex and the violence of the language. It's totally fine. And I find that so interesting. Not that I have a problem with it, but it's just like, oh, I would love to have more stuff that my kids can listen to, even though I'm pretty open with what my kids can listen to, but I just want them to understand it. Like the language isn't a problem. Like they've been in the room when I'm editing this show. I just want them to be able to understand the story because if they don't understand the story, then they're not going to be entertained. Right. So I would love stuff that's more directed at, you know, eight to 13 year olds. I think it's coming. I think we're going to see like a real flood, just like you saw like a huge swell of interest in YA print fiction. Yeah. Um, I think there's going to be like a great big, wonderful boom of audio programming for children for podcast. I would love that because my kids love audiobooks too. And it's really hard to listen to an audiobook in the car because it takes so many hours, but it's nice to have a podcast that's like 20 minutes and we can listen to it on the way to somewhere. And they talk about it for days, like they talk about their TV shows. So it's really nice to have that. And I think even if I didn't have kids, I would like, ah, kids programming would be great. And my husband's trying to say, well, why don't you make one? Uh-huh. I was like, do you know how hard it is to write for kids? Like, I understand why there aren't so many, because writing for kids is tough. Is there anything else you wanted to discuss about the show? I, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, oh, I should have had questions, like, from my, my actors. They always want to, like, ask me stuff about <laughs> the show. <laughs> They they get frightened that I'm going to kill them. Okay, sure. I know that feeling. This, <laughs> this is a show where people die and someone is dying. Uh-oh. Soon. I'm not going to say how soon, but somebody is oh, going to die. No. Not Dax. <laughs> oh, I do have a question for you because that, this came up interestingly. Uh, did you huh. ever at any point think that Dax did it? Because I had people tell me that they thought Dax was the killer. And I was like, oh, I never intended for that, but okay. <sighs> Maybe for like 15 seconds. <laughs> okay. Because he was just too nice. And then I was like, oh, no, that's just who he is. Okay, never mind. <laughs> that's just him. He's just that guy. That's just him. I was like, this guy's suspicious. Oh, 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 no. Okay. Oh, no, he's just a good person. I was just so not used to seeing good men. I see. Okay. <laughs> Guess that was something I like really wanted to do. And I wanted... It's funny because I think Courtney Hawley, she does the voice of Allison, pointed out to me that Myra has no flaws. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, wait, no, I, I I put flaws in all my characters. Wait, she has no flaws. Here, here's a question: what what do what do all these people see in Porter? <laughs> like as like why are they friends with him? 
Yeah, like as a friend or as like a romantic partner. Um, he's approachable. I don't. I don't mean that. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah, like he's an approachable guy. He just comes across as kind of like laid back and friendly. I guess I always like presented him as like he seems. He seems to be shy around people. So people are like, oh, well, he's approachable, but he does like have a serious temper. Sure. So that's always interesting. But yeah, but when he's not, when he's comfortable and he's doing his thing, he's just laid back and relaxed and likes to just hang out. So I think that's what people like about him, especially Dax. I think Dax needed somebody to be like, yeah, because Dax seems, I always wrote Dax as pretty serious. Like he's very serious about his job. He's very serious about what he does. And that the only time that he's ever like kind of laid back is with Luke and Porter. And even then of the three of them, he's still pretty stiff i guess (laughs) yeah he's the he's the super ego of that three-person group yeah i felt like when he's like yelling when they go rock climbing he's like yelling to to nature that's about as much as he gets yeah he's like the team dad (laughs) yeah he kind of is i know that and it felt like i wanted it to be kind of a natural progression for him to be a therapist like there was just nothing else he was going to do in his life <laughs> i was like he he was built to help people he was built to listen to people that's what he was going to do do you have like head canons for what these characters look like yes i do and i, I show pictures cuz when when i imagine dax i imagine him as being like very broad oh my gosh you're like the fifth person to say that He's tall and skinny in my head. Just, I feel like he's like really good at hugs. Oh, oh, that's cool. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, he's really tall and skinny with a big afro in my head. Okay. Which is so funny. But yeah, people are like, oh my gosh. And it's probably Avalon's voice. Mm-hmm. His voice is super soothing. And I always want him to laugh. It's just so, so resonant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, can you laugh some more? Because it's like the best laugh. <laughs> It's very comforting, yeah. Sure. Yeah, Luke is actually the big guy. He's really tall and he's broad-shouldered. He's kind of like, yeah, he's a big guy. He's actually modeled after a model whose name is Zach Miko. Because the reason I had to look it up, the first time I had to show it to um, Courtney, who plays Allison, because she was struggling with why Allison would be with Luke. And then she, when she saw the picture, she's like, oh, okay, I kind of understand now. <laughs> I w- the thing is that, like, a lot of my characters or, you know, people who talk to me about it are like, how could anybody like Luke? And I was like, the thing is, the audience is seeing him, how Porter sees him. But to everybody else, he's not that guy. Like, when he's with Allison, and especially when he's around Myra, he's, like, the sweetest person. He cooks dinner. He brings people stuff, you know. He's, like, the nice guy. And even Porter doesn't see him as not nice. He just sees him as like, you know, kind of pushy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you guys are the only ones who see him as a murderer. Nobody else. <laughs> nobody else knows that. Because, yeah, because that continues in season two. Sure. He's kind of got what my mother used to call Eddie Haskell syndrome. Okay. Which I think, I think Eddie Haskell's a character on Leave it to Beaver. Like there's this bully character who's like really shitty to like the, the, the main characters. But then as soon as an adult shows up, like he turns into just the sweetest boy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Luke. Oh, he's a snake. But he's like really good at manipulating people. Because I think, yeah, I'm going to release it. There's going to be an, 
I did a roundtable discussion with a bunch of the ladies from the podcast, and we got in a conversation about that, is that he he's very good at manipulating people to do exactly what he needs them to do. And he knows that if he dates Allison, that he can be as close to Myra as possible. But he has to still, you know, be good to Allison. Because if he's not good to Allison, then he can't have Myra. What a creep. (laughs) I know, it's awful. (laughs) I'm making him into the best kind of person. And the whole idea that he couldn't kill Porter, he was mad about it. But then he realized, oh, wait, this might be better. Mm Mm-hmm. This might be better if I can just torture him for a while. Yeah, he's that kind of twisted. So I'm enjoying that. I really enjoy writing Luke. And I know that's like the weirdest thing, but I think it's this idea of like people you you get to explore like the crazy without actually being involved with it. No, villains are fun. Villains are fun. Villains are fun to write. Villains are fun to play. Oh, Brian has a great time, I think. And Brian is completely not Luke. Like in any respect, like he even has a different voice. Like he has a Luke voice. Like, if you heard Brian talking, you wouldn't realize that he was Luke. He's definitely playing this role well. And when I write a line for Luke where I'm like, I don't know if that's working. And then Brian reads it. I'm like, nope, never mind. That was scary. Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. I I have to talk about how amazing my cast is because I love them all. And that I, I hit the jackpot of cast. They are perfect. Yeah, they're wonderful. And Garrett's not even an actor, so let's just have that moment. Where'd you Where'd you get Garrett? Um, actually, he's one of my former students. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's a mine in a rich vein up in here. <laughs> yeah, so I uh, when I put out the word to ask for people to help me with the podcast, he said he wanted to help. Um, he has his own podcast. And um, he's like, yeah, I'd love to help you out. And then he was like, actually, can I audition? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, for sure. And he was amazing, so he got the part. That's wonderful. He's been amazing. I don't know how he'd feel about this, but like, I, my favorite part of his performance is the crying. Oh, oh my gosh, he was so good at that. He was absolutely exhausted. We tired him out because that was a lot. He like went home and took a nap after day two. He was like, "No, this is I'm drained." But he does it really well. Like he worked up to it. Oh yeah, we. I was like, as much time as you need to take to get this working, and he was yeah, he was in it. It was amazing. I think he made Paige cry, his wife. <laughs> I think she may have cried a little bit. <laughs> but that means he was doing a great job, damn it. Right, right. Yeah. Faith, thank you so much for coming on Radio Drama Revival. This was an absolute delight. Oh, thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Oh my goodness, what a thoroughly delightful person. Come back anytime, Faith. Now, if you want to support Boom, you can set up a monthly donation over at patreon.com slash boompodcast. And hey, while you're there, join us on our Patreon. We're Radio Drama Revival on there, too. For $3 a month, you not only get access to our high-quality ad-free stream and our super-secret Discord channel, but you'll also get to hear extended cuts of interviews like the one you heard just now. I've come to realize after like two years of doing this that interviewing is a skill, and I think I've gotten better at it as I keep doing more. Something that I've appreciated in hearing Eli's extended cuts is that they expose a little more of my process than the final cut interview does. So if learning about that interests you, or if you just want to support the show, hit us up. Patreon.com slash Revival. But now, my pals, it's time for me to clamber up into that big baked potato in the sky. Time for credits. 
Our theme music is Danger Digidoo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Matthew Boudreaux. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreaux. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. Jillian, is that is that good? Sure. Yeah? Sure. Uh, I'll workshop it. This is very unprofessional. Oh, it's fine. Is it okay if I go check on my beans for a second? No, go. Okay, okay. I'm taking you with me. I'm just okay. not recording. <laughs> because I left the recorder in the closet.